If you would, turn in the scriptures to the book of Habakkuk this morning for our time together. And we will read a small portion at the beginning and at the end, and then proceed from there. I'll give you a moment, since it's a minor prophet, sometimes a little harder to find. Go to Matthew and turn left. The book of Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. How long, O Lord, will I call for help, and you will not hear? I cry out to you violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. And turning to chapter 3, picking up in verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vine, though the yield of the olive tree should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exalt in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like hinds feet, and makes me walk on my high places. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word, for by it we are taught, led, comforted, strengthened, encouraged, and many other things, Lord. We pray that by this word and by your spirit today, you would minister to your people, that you would instruct us and that you would lift us up. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Please be seated. So how many of you have read in the book of Habakkuk? Okay, I don't mean ever, but, you know, it's, it's not on everybody's list, I understand, but I really like finding sometimes these, these out-of-the-way books and digging into them a little bit. So today, we're going to look at the whole book, which is a little bit of a challenge, I know, but we're going to try to boil it down and keep it concise. But I was told a long time ago that when you speak, it's important to give them something they can take away with them. So if they get nothing else, they remember this thing. So this morning, I'm going to tell you that up front, and then we're going to go pull it out of the text. So, when we look at the book of Habakkuk this morning, this is not exhaustive, but what I want you to hear is one, and repeat this after me, one, God is not like us. Two, God is for us. And then finally, we walk by faith. Okay, now, keep that in mind. We will return to it, and hopefully you'll see it yourselves. By the way, I do encourage you to keep your text open. I want you to see where this comes from, okay? This is from the Word of God, and as much as I can be faithful to it, that, that's what you need this morning, not what I say about it. So see, test me, try, and see that these things are there. Now, I, think of these words, Assyrian, Persian, Roman, Mongol, British. What, do, what can all these things have in common? Empire. Empire. That's right. Every one of these has been an empire. At some time, quite a large empire, had a lot of influence, covered large portions of the earth. But what do they all have in common? Where, where are they now? 
Where are they now? Empires rise, empires fall. And I noticed that civilizations are the same. Empires, civilizations, somewhat synonymous, but not always. But civilizations, empires, they seem to have a life cycle. They rise, they fall. They start small. Some of them reach great heights, but eventually they disappear. It seems to be the way of human existence. There is a rise and a decline. There are many factors to these things. They're hard to decipher. People have written entire books, The Rise and the Fall of the Roman Empire, which I have not read and don't claim to be an expert on. But the fact is, these things come and go. And I believe, you can chalk this up as to my opinion, we're not in the text yet, in my opinion, we are on the downside, we're in the declining end of what has been Western civilization, what has been our culture. To me, it seems obvious we've turned a corner, and I want you to know that I'm not looking on this just in the short term, although you certainly could look at the news and say something's wrong, heading a wrong direction. And I was tempted to list all these things and to point all these things out to prove the point, but I'm not going to. Um, let's just say, in my opinion, I think we're on the declining side. I'm not out here to prove that today. I think, in my opinion, the seeds to this decline were planted a hundred years ago or more. Ask me about it sometime, be glad to tell you. I think they took root and sprouted maybe 50 years ago. I think now maybe we're in, they're blooming. I do think that maybe we're getting close to reap a harvest that we might wish we could avoid. I know some would accuse me of being pessimistic. I like to see it as realistic. And trust me, this is not by desire because I would rather be on the ascendancy of a culture, not the backside. I would rather be part of Tom Brokaw's greatest generation with their achievements. But yet somewhere between there and now, something went wrong. And I think that's where we're at today. So when I'm thinking of these things, being the amateur historian that I am, they're in my mind often. So I hope I'm wrong, but I don't think I am. I prefer to see better days. And my mind comes to a guy like Habakkuk. Habakkuk makes a very easy connection to our times today because he too is living in a declining culture. Habakkuk was probably alive, writing during the reign of Manasseh, who was one of the kings of Israel. This would be 350 years from Israel's peak. You know, at one time Israel was a mini-empire, and they ruled or controlled lands all the way from the Euphrates down to Egypt. It was not just this little sliver we see today, but that was a long time ago for Manasseh. Things had turned ugly. And Manasseh, Manasseh the king, was so bad. In the area, there was grave injustice. There was widespread violence. There was idolatry. There was abortion. I'm sorry, child sacrifice. You can, you can understand my confusion. All these things going on during the time of Manasseh, during the time that Habakkuk was alive. In fact, following Manasseh, there actually was another king who came along whose name was Josiah, and things got better for a little while. But so gross was the time of Manasseh that God said, because of the sins of Manasseh, I will not relent. I will remove this king so he doesn't have to see it, but my judgment stands. That is the time that Habakkuk is writing in. And so when he takes up his pen, and we see in verse 2, you can, you can read it with dispassion if you choose, but it's hard because you can just feel Manasseh's pain. How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? How long sometimes do we pray and wondering why will God not answer? But Habakkuk's condition is, I cry out to you violence and you don't do anything. 
I'm surrounded by iniquity. You make me look at wickedness. There is no justice. There is no justice. There's lawlessness at the top. There's lawlessness at the bottom. And yet, Lord, you do not respond. The wicked are surrounding the righteous, and justice comes out perverted. And yet, as we read at the end of chapter 3, we see this fantastic statement of rest, trust, faith. I will exalt in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like hind's feet, like deer's feet. And he makes me walk on my high places. He keeps me safe. What happened? This is all one communication. This is Habakkuk sitting down to give the expressions of his heart and mind, and he starts out in terror and frustration. And in the end, he arrives at a certain amount of peace, even confidence. What I want to look at today is the transition from the beginning to the end of Habakkuk. So, what made the difference? Let me first give you an outline of the text, and then we will come back to our points. And our points being, God is not like us. God is for us. And we walk by faith. So an outline of the text. We've already looked at the beginning. The prophet issues this complaint. He calls out to God and says, why do you not answer? And then the Lord answers. And Habakkuk's not sure he likes what he hears. Because it's not what he expected. And surely you can relate to that. Lord, how long will you leave me sick? Lord, how long will you leave me isolated and alone? And he answers, but it's not the answer you hoped for. And you're thinking, what's wrong? I know what's best. Why didn't he just do it? That's what Habakkuk experiences here. The Lord's response, beginning in verse 5, which I will not read, is that I am raising up a country by the name of Babylon who is going to come in and basically destroy the culture you're living in, Habakkuk. I have made note of the violence and the sin and the wickedness, and I'm doing something about it. I'm raising up Babylon. Now, at the time, Assyria is still the major power here, but God is raising up another country who's going to take a serious place, who's going to go the length and breadth of the known world of Habakkuk's time, and they're going to conquer, and they're going to take over, and they're going to kill and plunder And that is the Lord's response. And so then we come down to verse 12 and we see Habakkuk once again. Now he's incredulous. He asked God for help and God said, I'm going to come and destroy. And Habakkuk, he's incredulous. And he responds. He responds at first cautiously. He says in verse 12, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We will not die. You, O O Lord, have appointed them to judge. Now he's a little more shaky. He's asking more of a question. And you, O Rock, have established them to correct. He goes on and says, but Lord, you're too pure to approve evil. He goes on and says, you're too holy to justify this wickedness. Why in the world would you come and judge us by someone less righteous than we are? And thinking he's made his case... He backs off and he says, now I'm going to stand still and I'm going to wait for an answer from the Lord and see what he will explain to me this time. Maybe this will be more satisfactory. And so he waits again for an explanation. And the Lord responds beginning in verse 2 and goes through the end of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 2, through the end of chapter 2 at verse 20. And he says, look, it may be a long time coming... But it is coming, Habakkuk. What I told you the first time is true. What I said I'm going to do, I will do. 
It's for the appointed time, but it is definite. And then, when I have used this country of wickedness to serve my purposes, I will destroy them. Now, is that not fascinating to you? God raises them up to serve his purposes, and then he says, I will destroy them for their sinfulness. Because they loved what they did. They only did what their hearts wanted to do. They did what they wanted. I used it for my purposes, yes, but don't you worry. I will take care of them too. I will wipe them out. Now, does that bring up any confusion in your mind? Because it does mine. It does mine. I don't get it. But that's what God's going to do. It may be some time coming, but it is definite. I will use them for my purposes. I will discipline my people. But because in their doing it, they have sinned. They have only done what they wanted. They have rejected knowledge of God. They have pursued unjust gain. They have tried to build the city of man versus submission to the city or the rule of God. And so he pronounces over them five woes over this, over this nation, the civilization of Babylon. We see those in verses 6, 9, 12, 15, 19. He says, woe to them for their injustice, for their theft, for their violence, for their idolatry. And God says, I will make them pay once I've used them for my purposes. And in contrast to their idolatry in verse 20, he simply says, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. What else could we be after hearing that? What else could we be? And I think that's where Habakkuk then turns in chapter 3. And I think at first he's speechless. (laughs) I really don't think he knows how to answer. And in chapter 3, he begins with a little prayer. He begins with, actually, they take the whole thing, verses 1 through, verses 2 through 19, is probably a song, already had been written. We don't know if Habakkuk had written it or not. But if you go through here and just pull out pieces and phrases and stuff, you can actually go find a good chunk of this in the Psalms, whether it be Psalm 68, 110, 77, I was reading yesterday. Many of the same themes and ideas in this prayer or song of Habakkuk were already there. So it's very easily believed that this may have been a song used in the worship in the temple already. But before he begins singing, he says, Lord, in verse 2 of chapter 3, Lord, I've heard the report about you, and I fear. That's the proper response. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In other words, come again and do a work among your people. He says, in wrath, remember mercy. There's a certain resignation here now on the prophet's part. He has understood God's message. He knows what's coming. And there's a certain resignation. And then just a simple plea. Remember mercy. Remember mercy. And then he takes off in what is probably a psalm or a song of worship. He tells us many things in this song. He talks about a recognition of who God is. He sings the glories of God who has arrayed himself like a warrior. And then in 16 through 19, especially 18 and 19 that we read, there is this sense of resignation and yet confidence. And so there is the outline. And again, I have to ask, what made the difference? What did he notice? What did he see? Because to me, at first glance, this is just a heavy, heavy message. What do we do with this? And that brings us to point number one, which is, God is not like us. 
God is not like us. I was reminded this week and again this morning of a story from our family that my boys insisted I mention. When we were one time on vacation, it wasn't much of a vacation because we just went to Columbia, South Carolina, but there they have a big lake, and over there they have the largest or the second largest earthen dam east of the Mississippi. Big thing, but it's got a road over it. However, my oldest boy, who was then either the only one in the car or the only one awake, was in the back seat asking, where would we be going? And we said, we're about to go over a dam. You're going to like this. And he got silent for a moment. We didn't think much of it. And a few seconds later, he cries out, actually, I think with tears, what kind of parents would take a child over a dam? Now, I'm sure he's thinking like Niagara Falls over a dam. But you understand the difference in perception. We have a three- or four-year-old thinks he's in mortal danger, and the parents know something he doesn't. Okay, in that sense, God is not like us. We may not get it. We may not understand it. But in that sense, God is not like us. Most of us have a picture of God in our minds or an idea of God in our thoughts that simply is just not adequate. And it's just not accurate. And though God has revealed himself in many ways, we're so slow to see and we're so slow to understand and it is so corrupted by what we want that we just don't have an accurate picture of who God is. And in that sense... We need to understand that he's not like us. Now, theologians have always said there is a correlation between who we are, having been made in the image of God, and who God is. Even John Calvin said that to know God, we must know ourselves. There is something about us as a reflection of that image of God that tells us things about him. We can make things. God is a creator. We can figure things out. God is reasonable. You know, we can can show compassion. God is merciful. So there is a correlation. But we then go too far and think God is exactly what we are. Or if you're the Greeks or the Romans with all of their gods, we think that he is somehow us in superhero form. We think he's just like us, but he's bigger. He's a little bit stronger, but yet he still loses his temper once in a while, or he gets jealous, or he does something wrong. We think he's like that. we, We include all of our flaws in who we think God is. And God is not like that. God is other than us. He is so different than us, not just a matter of degree, but in a matter of kind. He is not us. Theologians like to use some terms, not every theologian uses them, but there is, when we studied the Westminster Confession, for those of you who came, we talked about the ideas of transcendence and imminence. You need to know these two ideas. The idea of transcendence is God's otherness. It's his differentness. In a sense, it's his distance from us. It is the way in which we can never be like him. It is his omnipresence that he can be everywhere at once. It is, it's his omnipotence that he is all-powerful and nothing can stand before him. In all these ways, we cannot be him. And yet at the same time, God is transcendent. He's imminent. Imminent means it's, it's more like the nearness of God or the involvement of God. So although he's out there, he's also here. He is involved in what he is doing. He has not created and turned it loose like the deist. He has created. He stands above it, but he is intimately involved in it and controls all things for the glory of his purposes. 
So he is not like us. He is transcendent. He is imminent. He is distant, and yet he is near, and he is all of this at all times. And look what he does. Verse 5 of chapter 1, Look among the nations and observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told I am raising up the Chaldeans. You know what it takes to raise up a country? I mean, really. You know what all has to come together at the right times, the right coincidences, and an aggregate of all these things so that he raises up a country that becomes an empire. And to make space for that empire, he's got to move others out of the way. Do you understand what it takes when a God says, I both build up and I tear down like pieces on a chessboard to serve his purposes? God is not like us. And if he did this simply whimsically, capriciously, just because he felt like it, it would be terrifying. But he is not capricious. He is not whimsical. In chapter 2, verse 14, we see that he is purposeful in what he does. He's purposeful. He says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This has always and forever been God's purpose, and it will be accomplished. What God does, He does. But He does it to fulfill His purposes of making His glory known among all of His creation. This goes back to the beginning in Genesis 1 when He says, let's make man in our image, and let's tell him, fill, multiply the earth. They are reflections. They are little images, reflections of the glory of God. And He says, fill the earth and have dominion over it. Reflect my glory. In Numbers 14, 21, at a time when Israel had once again sinned against God after he brought them out of Egypt, he got so mad, he told Moses, step out of the way. I'm going to destroy them and I will take you and make you a nation greater than they. Because as surely as I live, the whole earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Whether it be by Israel, whether it be by Moses, whether it be by Babylon or Pharaoh or anything else, God's purpose has not changed. And all that he does, he does to serve his purposes. So there is a plan. And so while we may tremble before a God who is not like us, surely we can take some comfort that at least he has a plan in what he's doing. At least he has a plan. In what he's doing, there is purpose in what God does. There is much mystery. But that's okay. That's okay. Why is that okay? Because I need more than you in the dark times. Look around. Look at the person sitting on your right and on your left, for those of you who have someone on your right and left, since Zach is lonely this morning. Look around. There are some of you here I've known for quite a few years, have a great deal of respect for. People who I have gone to on occasion for a bit of advice. I have the privilege of being on the session with Zach and Glenn, and I'm constantly amazed at the wisdom that comes out of the session when meeting together. And I can assure you, that's not my contribution. Okay, so there are people we can turn to, we can ask questions, we can get some advice, but you know what? In the hard times, in the times of mystery, in the times that you don't understand, in the times that can't be explained, you are not enough for me. I need something more. I need someone who is not like me. I need someone who is above me, who has a plan that encompasses the ages, who is not caught off guard. 
I need somebody who knows that even in the midst of my hurt, it's okay because he has a plan. He's doing something. I may not get it, but I thank God for it. He is not like me. Thank God. He's not like me. You know, there was a Bill Cosby episode. They asked the kids, if you were really in trouble, who would you turn to, kids? And they said, I'd probably go to my friends. (laughs) Instead of to their parents, who might know a little better, who might have the facility, the ability, the capacity, the means to help out, turn to my friend. Well, my friends, you're not enough for me. And I'm not enough for you. Thankfully, there is a God not like me. He is so much beyond me, yet he has committed himself to me. He made himself known. This would be scary if God were just some rogue, irrational tyrant, but he's not. And so, God is not like us, (laughs) but God is for us. And that ought to bring huge amounts of comfort. God is for us. Now we turn primarily to chapter 3. By now it's dawning on Habakkuk that God is doing something. But yet, that does not mean Habakkuk's life is going to be comfortable, is it? He has prayed, Lord, do something. And he says, well, you're just going to have to hang on, Habakkuk. I am doing something. It might not be comfortable for a while. And I believe Habakkuk now is realizing this. And so, as he prays and begs for mercy, he then moves to sing in a psalm. And let me just say, memorize yourself a psalm or two. I I like Psalm 103. I like Psalm 63 at times like this. And there have been times when I have taken walks. I like to take prayer walks. And I'm not as spiritual as many who take prayer walks and pray for their neighbors because I'm doing it selfishly. (laughs) But, But sometimes when I just don't know how to pray, don't know how to repeat the words again, what I do is I start reciting a psalm. And it does not fail, just like it does for Habakkuk. By the time I reach the end of that psalm, my heart is just full. Just full. I am lifted up. That's what Habakkuk does here. He starts out, he doesn't know what to say. Just, Lord, in your wrath, remember mercy, please. And then he begins to recite. And in this psalm, we see God is for us. In verses 3 through 15, primarily. The Lord is described here as stirred up and on the move. This is a bear coming out of hibernation. Shaking off the sleep, although God has never been asleep. (laughs) Omnipresent, omniscient, knows all things at all times. We don't have to worry about him being asleep. But he is stirred up now. And he's on the move. And there's a description of him. In verse 5, we see that he, before him, goes pestilence. That's sickness of some kind. After him comes plague. I don't get it. Remember, God is not like us. In his presence... As he arrives or passes by or speaks or looks, in verses 6 and 10, the very mountains quake. In verse 11, we see that the sun and the moon are entirely displaced because the Lord is stirred up and on the move. In verse 12, we see that the nations are trampled down. And then we see another description of God himself in verses 8, 9, and 11, and that he is ready for war. He is mounted upon his war chariot. He is Bearing his bow for battle. We see flashes. We see talks of arrows and spears. God is on the move. It's terrifying. 
This is not the only place we see this. This is reminiscent of when God came down on Mount Sinai and there was thunder and lightning and, and noises. And so the people were so afraid and trembling, they said, Moses, you go talk to them. We can't take it. God is on the move here. We see this in Revelation 6 where, where he who sits on the throne, all the mountains and islands fled from their place. God is on the move. God is taking note. Why is he doing this? It would be terrifying. But why is he stirred up? Why is he going forth? Go to verse 13. You went forth for the salvation of your people. This God who is not like us is for us. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You struck the head of the house of evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. You pierced his own spears, the head of his throngs. They stormed in to scatter us. Their exaltation was like those who devour the oppressed in secret. You trampled on the sea with your horses on the surge of many waters. He is not like us. He is terrifying, but he is on the move for the salvation of his people. Now Habakkuk has come to realize that that's not what's happening now. But yet he is reminded of the promise of God that there will come a day when God will work and achieve the salvation of his people. I love the phrase in here, second half of verse 13, you struck the head of the house of evil. He struck the head. Does that not make you think of anything else? How about he will strike your heel and the seed of the woman will strike the head of the enemy of God's people. God strides forth for the salvation of his people, and strikes the head of the enemy of his people. He strives forth for the salvation of his people, delivering a fatal blow to the head of the house of evil. Now Habakkuk had to take this entirely by faith. We have seen the salvation of the Lord. We have seen the Lord Jesus Christ come, and it says that he came to destroy the works of the devil. We have seen the salvation of the Lord accomplished. We do not receive it in its fullness yet, but we do receive it in reality. God is for you. If you have trusted in Him by trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, He is for you, not against you. You may not get it, but there is rest there. There is peace there because He's not like us, but He's for us. And that brings us to our final point We walk by faith. We walk by faith in the meantime. God has not promised you early deliverance. In fact, he's promised you that if you try to live a godly life, you will face persecution. We don't believe that as Americans because we really never have. But, oh, the tides are turning, are they not? We do not have the privileged position in society we have always had. And who knows how long it will be to where instead of ridicule, it's persecution, it's violence. Who knows? That's okay. God is not like us. God is for us. We walk by faith. Faith is actually somewhat mysterious to some people. It can be a very simple concept. Faith is believing what God has said. It's in verse 2, 4, where we say the righteous shall live by faith. That those, those who are counted as righteous by faith like Abraham, those who have heard the word of the Lord and have believed the word of the Lord, counted as righteous, will then walk in that same faith trusting in the word of the Lord. So when the Lord says, you will go through hard times, but I will save you, not not from it. I will not keep you from it. 
But I will save you out of it. I will sustain you in it. That's the walk of faith. When we see the resignation that Habakkuk had in the prayer and said, Okay, Lord, I get it. That's what you're going to do. Remember mercy, please. That's the same prayer Jesus prayed. Father, if possible, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, thine be done. That's the walk of faith. The health and prosperity teachers are wrong. Faith doesn't keep you from this. Faith supports you through it. We walk by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. It is a trusting a resting in the word of God is combined with faithfulness, faith in action, obedience. The old song we all sang in Sunday school, trust and obey for there's no other way. It is listening to the Lord and believing and finding rest there even when it doesn't line up with what you see right in front of you because things are hard. So the prophet here for us is actually an example of living by faith, is he not? He starts out in dire circumstances. He prays. He doesn't like the answer. He questions. God replies in no uncertain terms, and he submits, just like Jesus did in the garden. And then he worships. He takes a prayer walk. He sings a psalm, and then he confesses his faith. The Lord God is my strength. And he has made my feet like hinds feet. He makes me to walk on high places. He will sustain me through this time. Now, I would think the application would be obvious. Corporately, the church may suffer, but that's okay. That's okay. God is not like us. God is for us. We walk by faith. But let's make it more personal. I believe it's a fair application. What about you who suffer health issues and it has gone on for years and you've wondered why God has not removed this from you? Okay, well, God is not like you. He is for you. Keep walking. What about those who have a child that have gone away and are living in rebellion both to his parents and to the Lord and you have prayed and said, Lord, why? Bring them back. I can't bear it any longer. And he says, I've got my plans. I've got my purposes. Trust me. I'm not like you, but I am for you. What about those who have suffered some financial need and you're tired of poverty? Whatever it may be, you can insert the cause or the situation and you wonder why God has not removed it from you. He doesn't always tell us why, but he tells us what. He says, I'm not like you, but I am for you. Keep walking. And then let me just finish. People who know not God. Where do you turn when it's hard? I don't know how you do it. But let's just say you're one of those rare individuals for who life has been easy. Either born with a silver spoon in your mouth or luck of the draw, things have gone well. You have never suffered, never been without. Fantastic. I'm very happy for you. There's still the river of death to come. And the Bible tells us that it's appointed unto man to die once and after that the judgment. And so let me ask you, where do you turn? Keep in mind, you may think, surely I've been good enough. Surely, compared to the next guy, I'm not that bad. Let me remind you, 
God is not like you. Will he be for you? You need to turn to him and learn the walk of faith. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would take this word and make it effective for your kingdom, for your glory, for the comfort of your people. Lord, I am so thrilled that your purposes in filling the earth with your glory coincide with your purposes for the good of your people. Lord, grant us confidence, encouragement, and peace to those who are in the midst of suffering. Remind us of who you are. In Christ's name I ask, amen.